Good. Um, just stay. decide to keep going longer, which is quite okay. Um, also, we had last week, where all of our giving is going to uh, uh, causes related uh, for compassion needs. Uh, we certainly timely that we took that up and then uh, I'm, I'm guessing that many of us saw the destruction down in Mississippi from the tornadoes uh, just uh, when was it Friday night so um, we'll be able to contribute to that if you would like to add to that amount you can still do that uh, just uh, make sure you put on the check or on the envelope that is for Compassion Sunday, and we will uh, get that to the to the right place. So we're approaching the end of of um, our one another's renewing one another. And um, then we will be ready for Easter, right? So uh, one thing leads to another. But it's interesting if you look down through the list, and uh, many of you, I mean, you saw the list, you contributed the uh, devotional thoughts that went into our prayer guide, which has, has been really, really helpful and I've really appreciated. Um, but on the, the long list that different people could sign up for, we had... 31 different one another statements. Uh, and, and there probably could have been some more that we, a, a few more, not many more, a few more that we could have added. But it was interesting, as you look down the list, in, in one place it says, don't provoke one another. And then you keep on coming down further, and it says, provoke one another. <laughs> now, that doesn't happen very often. You know, it says in one place, you know, speak truthfully to one another. There is not another place that says, lie to one another, okay? Um, it, it says, bear one So it, it, it's, it's kind of unusual to have this uh, provoke one another, or don't provoke one another, and then do provoke one another. Now, usually when we hear the word provoke, we think of which emotion do we think of? Anger, right? So if, if you, I was, that, that's a classic defense, right? I hit him, but I was provoked, okay? Because that gets you off the hook, right? Um, and so uh, that, that's usually how we use that word. But, but provoke really just means um, to make something happen. Okay, to cause something to happen. And, and so that's, 
whether that be anger, which I think when we use it by itself, saying I was provoked, it, it's automatically connected to anger. But uh, and in Hebrews chapter 10, which is where we uh, read a little earlier and where we'll be spending our time today, um, the word provoke is only actually used in the King James Version. Uh, other, other translations, including the NIV that we read from, are going to say in, in verse 24, spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Okay? Spur one another on. Uh, some, some other places, will, other translations will say stir up one another. Now, it's interesting because all of those, whether it be provoking, spurring, or stirring up, they can um, be negative. Right? What do you usually stir up? Trouble. Right? It's like we know how that phrase ends. Stir up. I know some of you were saying soup or, uh, you know, <laughs> but usually it's stir up trouble. Um, even the idea of spurring, right? The spurs aren't exactly pleasant. So it's kind of a, a negative idea there as well. And, and so it's unusual that the text here says, stir up, not trouble, but love and good, good, good works, good deeds. So before we uh, continue further in these actual verses, I want us to just take a moment to consider what's going on in the book of Hebrews as a whole. And it's, um, it's kind of difficult with these one another verses because sometimes it's just one verse in a whole book. And you know we're not expected to just automatically know the whole book, but it does matter at times. It does make a difference. So this section of the book of Hebrews, chapter, well, the second half of chapter 10, uh, we can go down into Hebrews chapter 11, which is well known, the, the chapter of faith, right? And, and all the examples, the hall of faith, uh, hall of fame of faith. And, and so it, it gets to this part of the, the letter where it's saying, this is how you're to live. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, to be a child of God, a member, a citizen in God's kingdom. But the first half, really up to this point in the book, it's all been about who Jesus is. It's been saying that Jesus is the high priest, that Jesus is the sacrifice in fact, at the beginning of chapter 10, and we will look at the whole of chapter 10 in our growth groups, or most of chapter 10 in our growth groups this week. If you're able to join one of those, you're certainly still welcome. But at the beginning of the chapter here, it's talking about how uh, the difference between the sacrifices that were offered at the temple in an ongoing basis and the sacrifice of Jesus that only needed to be made once. And, and so... It's the supremacy of Jesus, but it's also just, who is Jesus? He's the ultimate sacrifice. He's the great high priest. And, and so we, we can see how this transition uh, is taking place from 
the Mosaic law uh, through to uh, the new covenant that Jesus uh, introduces. So that's what's been happening. And we've just reached this point where it, it, uh, really in verse 18, it, it's a pivotal, pivotal moment. It's like a conclusion. And it says, and these have been forgiven. These, and where these, sorry, sins have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Boom. Period. And there really should be a new chapter that begins there. Because now we move into part two. And it says, therefore, because of everything that has already been taught about who Jesus is and about what Jesus has done, in light of all of that, now let me tell you how you should live. And so the writer turns from explanation about Jesus to the application of it in a church that was going through difficult times. We might say it goes from doctrine to duty, from creed to conduct, from precept to practice. And the, the last thing that I want to say that we, we should get out of all of that, if this is who Jesus is, if Jesus is the great and the ultimate high priest, if Jesus is the last sacrifice that is necessary, then we should feel very confident. Confident about Jesus. Confident that Jesus is who he says he is, that he has done what he has said he has done. We should feel confident about our lives. We should feel confident about our relationship with him. We should feel confident about our future, about our hope. You see, if, if that first half is all true, then where are our doubts and our questions? Now, we may have doubts and questions about that, and that leads to doubts and questions the rest of our life, but if we accept who Jesus is and what he's done for us, then we have reason for confidence. Confidence in our access to God and confidence in our advocate before God. So when we talk about confidence, I want to make sure that we don't confuse confidence with arrogance. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul there writes to Timothy. He says, this is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this suffering is no cause for shame because I know whom I've believed. All right? I know who I've believed. And because I know in whom I believed, I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. Okay, so because I know who Jesus is, then I can trust him for the future. First John chapter 4 and verse 16. Here the Apostle John is able to write, and he says, so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. Right? It's not just a, a hope or I think that God loves me or I think that God is loving. He's able to say, I, we know, and, and because we know God is love, as the verse goes on to say, then we can rely on God's love. And, and we can live in light of God's love. 
Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So I want to illustrate the difference between confidence and arrogance. You see, I believe that our confidence should always be in Jesus. And our arrogance is usually in ourselves. And so we can be confident that Jesus forgives us. We're arrogant if we think that we deserve it. We, we can be confident that God loves us, but we're arrogant if we think that he only loves us. We can be confident that God has given us the Bible, but we become arrogant when we think that we understand it all perfectly. And, and so the, the writer of Hebrews wants us not to be arrogant, but to be confident in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And that we should then live confident lives. And so I want to begin today in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. That may not mean a whole lot to you. But if you take a moment to recall or learn what the most holy place is, I think it's a powerful little phrase, little verse. Because Paul is saying to this Jewish audience, he says, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. How could that possibly be the case? The most holy place was the inner sanctum of the temple. And the only person that could go in there was the high priest, and he could only go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, he would go in, and, and they would you know, have the blood that they would be sprinkled, he would be purified, and that purification process that he went, to, went through would enable him to go into the most holy place. It was called the most holy place, uh, because it was regarded as a, the, the, it was the place, location where the Ark of the Covenant was kept before that was lost. But it also was regarded as the place where, uh, as God's footstool. Right? The, the t lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat, as though because God dwelled there. And so you can sort of picture it as this conduit between earth and heaven, with, with one end at the throne of God and the other end in the most holy place, a direct link. And so you couldn't just wander in there willy-nilly. Right? You, you did that and you were in trouble. Um, in, in fact, I, I, don't think there's, I don't think there's any truth to this, but the, there's sort of like a tradition that the uh, high priest, when he went in there, would tie a rope around his leg first in case he had an impure thought while he was in there and got zapped, and they could drag his body out without um, you know, polluting themselves, you know, without putting themselves in danger. Uh, so that was, I, I think it was a later sort of fable that was made up. But it gives us an idea of how holy 
They regarded this, how sacred that space was. And so now Paul is writing to this audience of a, a whole bunch of, of Jewish Christians, and he says, yeah, we could go into the most holy place with confidence. No ropes around our legs, you know, no, no second guessing, no wondering. We could go in there confidently because we've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And that makes a difference. And so because of what Jesus has done, we can live with confidence, even going into the most holy place, the, before, into the presence of God. And so the passage, I'm, I'm not going through it verse by verse, but the passage here continues describing all that Jesus has done for us and describing the mindset that we should have as a result. And because of this, and because God is faithful, right? we don't have to wonder if he's going to change his mind. God is faithful. God is consistent. And so because of all that, in verse 24, it says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. How do we respond to who Jesus is and what he's done for us? First thing, we seek to love and to do good to others. Right? We seek to love and do good to others. That could still be a very individualistic approach to our faith. Right? God saved me, the blood of Jesus saved me, and now I just have to love and do good, and hey, I'm good. Right? But the, the, the next, that's not what it says though, is it? It says, let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good works. And so there's this, picture here right from the get-go that, that because of everything that Jesus has done for us, because we're part of his family, that we automatically, the first thing we do is not love and good works. The first thing we do is get with other Christians. We spur on one another, right? We need to have the one another before we can do the love and the good works. here. And so the importance of Community, the importance of family, the importance of, of being part of something bigger than ourselves is immediately obvious. Because of all Jesus has done, because God is faithful, then encourage, spur each other on, encourage each other to be loving and to do good works. Interestingly, it doesn't tell us how to do this. It doesn't tell us, here's what I want you to do. I want to make sure you preach a sermon every Sunday that, that, that is all about love and good works. Right? I, I want you to have Bible studies or growth groups every week that are all about love and good works. I want you to, to work your way around the congregation, have you know, individual one-on-one -on -one conversations with people, encouraging them to get involved with loving others and, and doing good works. But here's, here's, do you notice what it says? It doesn't tell us how, but it says, consider how we can do this. Right? It says, you work it out, <laughs> right? But, but 
get this, you need to work it out. So, so it's not just, oh, consider, yeah, yeah, no, I haven't, yeah, it's been 20 years, but no, I'm still, still working on that one, Jesus. Yeah? I'm still considering that. How to encourage the people around me to be more loving and more engaged in good works. And, and I, I see the good works there as being um, putting that love into practice. And so I, wanna, I wonder this morning, how much consideration have you given to encouraging others to love more? Have you spent time thinking of ways to encourage others to practice good deeds, to put their love into action? Like, sometimes I think our faith our walk with God can be so individualistic that we're like, you know, you know, God, I am just like so, so focused on trying to love more myself and to, to put my love into action more myself. I mean, they're just like, they're just going to have to take care of themselves, right? I mean, if I have to do it for myself, then they have to do it for themselves. So I, I think it's, a, it's challenging for us to say, how can I engage people around me? And say, hey, God wants you to be loved. And God wants you to be putting that love into action. Now, I do think one of the ways that we do this is through our different ministries that we have, right? And so somebody can come up with an idea for a ministry, and, uh, and then we say, yeah, that's great. Let's all jump on board with that. Isn't that encouraging one another towards love and good deeds? Um, and, and so I know we've, it may seem just over the last... Few, few weeks that we've been overwhelmed with opportunities to express our love through good deeds, right? Uh, through giving for different items for college kids or for uh, the high school students or uh, we've got diapers coming up, we're giving to Compassion Sunday. Like all of that is an overflow of our love. And, and as we talk about it and as we give each other an opportunity to, to practice this, we're, we're kind of doing what we're told here as a congrega- at a congregational level anyway. But what about our smaller groups? What about our, um, our conversations with each other? When somebody says, oh, I'm having a problem with someone else. How do we respond to that? And so I, I think that this is uh, an important thing for us to, to consider, to make part of our Christian uh, Christian life together. Now, according to verse 25, as we keep reading, some people who were receiving this letter were actually doing the opposite of spurring one another on. They were giving up, getting together. And, and so there's a problem with this because if you're not getting together, and, and I would say in our context, whether you're you're, you're not engaging with people, whether online or in person, if you're not having conversations, if you're not participating with each other, then, then you, how are you going to do the important task of encouraging love and good works amongst each other? And so Paul says, or, or the author, sorry, says, don't do that. Don't, don't give up. Don't avoid each other but rather 
encourage one another. Now sometimes, and you may have heard this, that uh, this verse is used to insist that it's sinful to miss a Sunday morning worship service. Uh, But before you get too insistent about that meaning of the verse, notice how the verse ends. All the more as you see the day approaching. You see, I I, I believe that that we're encouraged to get together. I think there's wonderful benefits for being together. I think that it facilitates the goal of spurring one another on to love and good works. That's the purpose. You you see, sometimes what we've said is, no, the, the goal is being together. I don't know if you've ever been on a family trip and there is someone in the family that just doesn't want to go. Okay? They're missing out on something. And they don't want to go, but you're a responsible parent, or you know, you, you, your parents were responsible, and, and you, I mean, that person gets dragged along on that outing. It's like, nope, we're going to this hockey game as a, as a family. It's like, but it's cold. I'm cold. I don't like hockey. You know, whatever it might be. We're doing it as a family. Come on. Right? And, and they're there. And they can always say, look, Dad, I never missed a family outing. You know what? You're right, but you made them miserable. (laughs) Right? Do we get points for attendance in that context? No. Right? And and so when we say, when we, we emphasize attendance as the goal, rather than encouraging one another as the goal, then we're, we're, we're setting ourselves up for, for disappointment and for failure. And so, all the more as you see the day approaching. Let me, let me point this out. If we read the verse and we go, well, that's talking about Sunday morning. Right? Don't forsake the gathering together, the assembling of yourselves together. So if we say, oh, that's talking about Sunday morning. Well, when it was written, it was talking about Sunday morning. Now, over 2,000 years, we're getting closer to the day. And we're to be assembling all the more as we see the day approaching. How often should we be assembling now? In chapter 3 and verse 13, we're told there of Hebrews, we're told to encourage one another daily. I think that's what he has in mind. He's not just talking about getting together on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or a Wednesday or a Tuesday growth group or whatever it might be. He's, 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 saying, he's already said at the beginning of the book, encourage one another daily. Be involved in each other's lives because that's what church is. And, and when we're involved in each other's lives, we're encouraging each other. That's why there are all these one another's. And they can't all be done on a Sunday morning, right? Um, and, and so we've, the, the, the point of these one another's, the point of this verse is, is to look around and be part of a body, be part of a church family, and, and, and participate with each other and know each other and encourage each other and spur one another on. And when somebody's down, pick them up. And when somebody's you know, feeling weak, give them strength. When somebody needs some advice, give them advice, help them out. That's what the church is to be like. He says, don't avoid the church. Right? 
because that's not what the Christian walk is supposed to be. Be part of the church. Participate in the church. And so I think it's very important that as we read verse 25, that we give the emphasis to verse 24 rather than verse 25. And so as I read it, 25 is a, a contrast to the way that confident Christians should be acting. It's about relationship. As I said, the whole book of Hebrews describes what Jesus has done for us. And I can promise you that Jesus didn't die, didn't become the last and the ultimate sacrifice to create a group of people who meet together on Sunday morning. He died as the last and ultimate sacrifice to adopt people into his family. He died to create a living organism, a new body. And the church must be about relationship over attendance. Now, I, I know the people that want to hear me saying that attendance doesn't matter, you won't be here next Sunday, right? And, and, and if you want to hear that, you can hear that. Right? But because it's about relationship, because the church, because our faith, because everything that Jesus has done for us is about relationship, then he says, you're invited to come each Sunday. Right? Do you want to be here each Sunday? Do you want to fellowship with Jesus? Do you want to be part of this family? Do you want to fellowship with each other? Do you want to be encouraged? Do you want to encourage others? Is there value in this? Because that's what loving God and receiving God's love is like. It's not forcing a kid to be at a hockey game. Because our faith isn't an individualistic enterprise. It's a relationship with God and his children. And so if we take this relational element of our faith seriously, we don't need a command to tell us to spend time with other believers. We don't need a command to tell us to worship God and to praise Jesus. We do this because of the relationship that we have with God, with Jesus, and with each other. So I want to close by giving us four ways, and I'm sure you can consider many more, uh, but four ways that we can spur on one another toward love and good works. And the first one is, is really simple. It's prayer. It's prayer. And... Uh, be specific and be persistent. One of the things I think we miss with prayer, well, aside from actually praying, but it is letting other people know that we're praying. You see, I, I think in terms, for, in order for prayer to be encouraging to someone else, someone else needs to know that the prayer is taking place, right? Now, now, God may answer the prayer, and they can be encouraged because the, the thing they ask people to pray for happens or doesn't happen, as the case may be, but it makes a difference in our relationships, in the love that we have for each other, when we say, hey, I am pray I've been praying for you this week. How's that going? How's that going? 
And, and that is an encouraging, it makes prayer not only about us and God, but it makes it about the way that we interact with each other. And as we do that, as people know that we're praying, we encourage them to do the same, because that's the second thing I have here, and that is example. That, that we spur on one another towards love and, and good deeds uh, when we do it ourselves. Right? And it's a, a fact that loving God and others and doing good deeds are more readily caught than taught. Okay? You see, I can stand here and say that you need to visit someone in a hospital. But it's going to go a whole lot better if I say, hey, would you like to come with me to visit someone in a hospital? Okay? And, and then once we've done that together a few times, you might say, hey, I, I actually went and saw them on Tuesday and uh, I couldn't wait for you. You were too slow, Peter. So I just went ahead and did it. And, and because of that, that person's caught something that I could have stood up here and, and talked about for weeks without actually motivating anybody to take any action. So when we have opportunity to be engaged in things that are expressions of our love towards others, seek to involve others in those and, and thus uh, mentor or disciple or lead, guide by example. The third one I have here is God's word. And, and so when when we internalize God's word, we are better able to encourage, to spur one another on to love and good deeds because we know what God tells us to do. And we can share that with others. We know who Jesus is. Like if we just pick up our, uh, at Hebrews 10, 19, and we say, this is who you should be. This is how you should live. You should be confident. You should be loving others. You should be doing good words. And we've turned the Bible into a book of shoulds. And, and the, the first nine chapters, ten, uh, nine and a half chapters, are saying this is who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And, and it's only because of that that we get to these things that we react, we respond to what Jesus has done in this way. We live by faith because of that. And, and so, if we know our Bibles, if we've internalized the Bibles ourselves, now we're in a place to be able to share them with other people, rather than just saying, this is what you should be doing. We say, no, this is who God is. This is what God's done. This is why God wants us to be doing this. And fourth one I have here is, uh, don't is encouragement. Sometimes it really is just a word or a gesture. Right? Um, ladies involved in the secret sisters, isn't it encouraging to come in and see that there's a bag with your name on it? Right? Um, because you just said, hey, someone, I don't know who they are at this point, but they thought about me. They thought about what I'd like. They, they considered, and, and it could be a card, it could be words on a card, it could be a gift that's given, uh, a words or gesture, whether written or spoken, um, it can just be encouraging to us, spoken at the right time. And then uh, I actually have five. The fifth one is, I know you're getting excited, Betty, but uh, there's five. <laughs> be involved. Be involved. Um, be present physically when you can. Be present through phone calls. Be present through emails, through Zoom calls, through growth groups. 
be involved in what's going on. Because there is something to the attendance, and oftentimes it's just the presence of somebody is encouraging. Right? When you see somebody that's been on vacation for a month, and, and they come back, you're encouraged to see them. Okay. Man, I'm glad you're back. Maybe I've just missed your voice singing in my ear, or maybe it's, you know, it could be all sorts of things. It doesn't have to be anything huge and say, hey, I'm a better Christian because you're here today. Right? It doesn't even have to be like that, but I'm encouraged to be here because you're here. Um, I can see your smile through that mask, and it just warms my heart um, to, to know that you're, you're here. And so whatever we do when we're involved, when we're taking action, we're spurring one another on to love and good works. Spurs aren't comfortable. <laughs> I'm not a horse. I've never been kicked with a spur. But, you know, it's not comfortable getting kicked with a boot. I've, I've had that happen to me. A spur would be worse, I'm presuming. The idea of spurring, provoking, prompting, stirring one another on means that love and good works is oftentimes outside our comfort zone. You know, oh, not me, <laughs> right? I'm a loving, good, working person every day of the week. But it's, we, if it was in our wheelhouse, if it was in our comfort zone, nobody would need to kick us in the side with a set of spurs and say, get out there and love some people. Show people that you love them. Tell people about God's love. Right? And so... The comfort zone is the opposite of spurring one another on to love and good works. We should be challenging each other to find new opportunities, to look for new ways of loving and sharing God's love. And so as we leave today, in just a little bit, as we come around the Lord's table, the first thing I want you to feel, I want you to know, before I'm telling you what you should do, is that we're going to come around the Lord's table and be reminded who Jesus is, what he's done for you. Be reminded how much he loves us and how he lived out that love that he has for us. Thank you, Lord. <clears throat>